In the past five Sundays, we have answered these five questions. Who are we? Why do we gather? What do we owe each other? What are we good for? And how are we led? Looking at various aspects of life together in a local church. What defines us? What are our priorities? How do we relate to one another? And all of these sorts of matters. And all of this has been in pursuit of clarity concerning the nature and scope of the life of the church together and the core commitments that we make to each other as members of Christ's body. I submit to you that the topic we'll explore together today, while not uh, as technical or even as theological as some of these other considerations, may be the most important one of all, namely the priority of love in the church. John Owen said, the teaching of the Lord Jesus emphasizes no other virtue as highly as that of mutual, intense, affectionate love amongst his followers. I think he's right. So today we ask the question, what holds us together? Because believe me, there are forces trying to drive us apart. It would be to the dishonor of Christ for the church of God to be rent asunder. And so you can be sure that the enemy of God and the enemy of our souls is after that very thing where he can sow seeds of disunity and division and distrust among the people of God and local churches can be splintered and dysfunctional and broken apart, our enemy rejoices. So there's something that holds us together that indeed must be the glue that binds together the people of God throughout the course of this life. And I'm contending, of course, that it's love. It's the priority of love. Here, here's a main idea. I'm going to express it in two different ways, and then we'll just kind of, uh, we're going to walk through a passage together. But the main idea is basically this. In order for a church to display Jesus Christ, it must be characterized above all by love. In order for a church to display Jesus Christ, it must be characterized above all by love. Another way to say that would be love is the key ingredient in the life of a church that gives it the, the flavor of Christ himself. The life of Christ lived out among a people must look first and foremost and primarily like love. Turn in your Bibles to... Thanks, Siri. Turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. Paul has written rich gospel theology in the first couple of chapters of this letter to the Colossian church. Speaking of the preeminence of Christ and his sacrifice for them and who they've now come to be. 
And as is his sort of typical pattern, after these stakes are in the ground about what, who God is for us in Christ and who he's made us to be and what he's done for us in the gospel, now he starts to flesh this out. So now that you've come to believe these things and now that this is true of you, here is how your life together should look. And so Colossians 3 is filled with these kinds of practical exhortations. And so I want to hang out here this morning. I'm going to read for you verses 5 through 15. And I realize that's not exactly an entire uh, passage or section, but I'm going to start in verse 5. I'm going to read through verse 15, and we'll bring in some of the other verses around it as we go. Colossians 3, beginning of verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Three observations I want to make from these verses about love. Number one, it all comes down to love. It all comes down to love. There's a lot of exhortations in this passage. There's a couple of lists with a lot of things going on. The classic vice list and virtue list in contrast to one another. We're called to put away the vices and to put on the virtues, right? There's a lot of exhortation going on in this passage. But Paul explicitly and emphatically points ultimately to love as the thing, the virtue that holds all of these things together. And that's, of course, where I got the title of this message from, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And so he speaks of these virtues and these vices as these various ways of life, an old way of living versus a new way of living, an old nature according to our flesh and a new nature according to the spirit. And he uses the metaphor of putting on and taking off clothing. And so he tells us to put on 
these virtues and to put off, to take off these vices. And then he says, above all, in other words, over all of them put on love, sort of like the image of a cloak that goes over everything else that you're wearing. And so all of these other virtues that you have put on have now been held together by the cloak that you put on over all of it of love. I want you to notice that the the vices that he lists in verses 5 through 9 are largely community-destroying vices. Now, they're not all outward community-based things. In fact, several of the first things he lists in verse 5 have to do with sexual sin of various kinds, sexual immorality and impurity and passion and evil desires. All of those things are related to uh, the, the sexual identity and expression of a person. And as sinners, we're fallen in every capacity, which includes that capacity. And so there's this list of these varied ways that we can be uh, sexually broken. But of course, those have impact on your community as well, right? The way that you live those out and the way that you treat other people in your community in relation to that has an effect on the, the, the life of the people together. So he begins there, but then I want you to notice in verse, uh, in verse 8, these get much more explicitly relational. The vice list continues. Now you must put them all away, put away anger, wrath. <laughs> anger and wrath are pretty closely related. Perhaps wrath is the sort of intense expression of that anger, the inward anger that bursts out in words of hatred or acts of violence against somebody. Malice, that's actually ill intent towards someone, even if you don't act anything out. Thoughts and desires that are against a person, that's malice. Put it away. Slander, speaking ill of one another. Obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie. To one another. So these vices in verses 5 to 9 are community destroying sins. And conversely, the virtues that he gives us, beginning in verse 12, are community building virtues. Look again at verse 12. Put on then compassionate hearts, compassion toward each other. Kindness. It's actually acts of goodwill toward one another. Humility, meekness, patience, those things are all closely related to each other, but they have to do with how we live in a gentle way among the people of God. We're patient with each other. We're not, we don't think of ourselves as better than the other. Bearing with one another. I, I think patience and bearing with each other are a one-two punch. And I think to bear with somebody means I'm not going away. I'm not walking away from you because I got tired of this or because you offended me one too many times or whatever. To bear with somebody is I'm still in this with you. I'm going to keep moving forward. I'm still here. Bearing with one another and if one has a complaint against another, which 
Surely that'll happen. Surely you'll have a complaint against somebody else within the church. Surely, I know you hate to think of it, but somebody in the church might have a complaint against you. What do we do with those complaints? Forgive each other. Forgive each other. Let each other off the hook. So these virtues, in contrast to the vices in verses 5 through 9 that are eroding community, these virtues build up community. They strengthen relationships. They, they build up the life of God's people together. And so when he says, and above all these things put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, I think both the putting away of the vices and the putting on of the virtues are themselves expressions of love. Love among the people of God looks like eliminating sin and vice that erodes community. And love among the people of God looks like cultivating the blessing and virtue that builds community. We've got to be aware of the pitfalls and the ditches and the dangers so that we can steer around them, and we need to be intentionally, diligently pursuing that which is good, that which builds up. To quote Owen again, he says, Love is the fountain of all duties towards God and man, the basis of all rules that concern the saints, the bond of communion, the fulfilling of the law, the advancement of the honor of the Lord Jesus, and the glory of the gospel. Love summarizes all of this. And of course, Jesus himself summarized the entirety of the Christian life in these terms as well, didn't he? When somebody said, teacher, what is the greatest commandment? What did he say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And number two, love your neighbor as yourself. On these two, all of the law and the prophets depend, says Jesus. In other words, I can sum up the Old Testament with the command to love. That's what Jesus says. And you may have heard that even the, the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, are often summarized in that way. The first four commandments, the first table of commands, has to do with love of God. Honor, your, honor the Sabbath and you know, have no other gods before me and those sorts of things. And then the second table of commands is all about loving your neighbor. Don't steal, don't kill, don't bear false witness, all those things, right? Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. So the summary of the Christian life in a manner of speaking is love. Love God, love neighbor. And the primary venue where that is to be played out is in the local church. So what does it mean to be the people of God in a local church? It means above everything else love it all comes down to love second point is this you have to choose to love you have to choose to love i think implicit in these contrasting commands put off anger and rallus and slander and put on kindness and compassion and patience. Implicit in the very fact that we have contrasting commands related to vices and virtues 
is the reality that as followers of Jesus Christ, both of these lists are accessible to you. Both vices and virtues are within your reach. As nice as it would be, you are not exempt from the vices on the first list. When you came to faith in Christ, that stuff didn't all just fall away. Now I no longer have those desires. Now I no longer have any of that brokenness. It's all just gone and everything is perfect. That's not the case, as I'm sure you know. Just as you can take off one shirt and put on another, it is possible to slide back and forth between these two conflicting ways of life. Vice one moment and virtue the next. Consider the, the paradoxical relationship between the Christian's reality and his responsibility. So back in verse 3, we actually haven't read these verses yet, have we? I don't think we did. I'll read them for you now. Let's look at verses 1 to 4 of Colossians 3, and then I'll make this point. <clears throat> so before he gets to the put on then, right, or put to death, therefore, in the beginning of chapter 3, he says, If then you have been raised with Christ, so there's our union with Christ, our identity with him. If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For, verse 3, you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's objective reality. That's happened. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you've repented of your sins, trusted in Christ, you have died, and your life is hidden with him. And the result of that, verse 4, is that when Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. That's objective truth. You have already died with Christ and been raised with Christ. That is your identity as one who is united to Christ by faith. And so he says in verse 3, you have died, but then he says in verse 5, put to death, therefore, that which is earthly. Well, wait a minute. I thought you said I'd already died to sin. Yes. Now, because you've died to sin, put sin to death. There's an objective reality that's spiritually true of us, but we actually have the choice on a day-by-day -day basis, maybe even a moment-by-moment -moment basis, to put that into practice, to be who we really are. You are united to Christ. You have died to sin. You have been raised with Christ. Now, therefore, because that is true, put to death what is earthly among you. And then we have the same reality, but in the more positive way, in verse 9, he says, you have put on the new self, right? I guess that's verse 10. <clears throat> you have put off the old self and have put on the new self. Okay, that's, a, that's an objective reality that he's pointing to. As those who are united to Christ, we have put off the old self and we have put on the new self. But then in verse 12, he says, put on then compassionate hearts and kindness and meekness and these things. Well, I thought I already put on the new self. Yes, you have. You do have the new nature. Now, live it out. Put it into practice. So 
it seems like a paradox, but there's, there is a reality in which we live where we belong to Christ, we are raised with Christ, we, we are His, we have this new nature, but we have choices to make to actually practice those realities, to actually live as who we are. And so because of that tension, virtue and vice are both within the grasp of the Christian. Virtue is within your grasp because you have a new nature in Christ. You're empowered by the indwelling Spirit of God. So this list of virtues is not impossible for you to reach and to live out because the Spirit of God is in you. The life of Christ is in you. You are united to Him. You're raised up with Him. So you can bear with people who offend you. You can forgive those against whom you have a complaint. You can be kind and merciful and tender-hearted toward one another. You have the ability to do that by the Spirit of God that is in you. <clears throat> but you also have vice within your grasp and sin within your grasp because your flesh is still clinging, right? And you still have earthly desires present in your heart. It's really easy to pick up those earthly vices both are within your grasp so you've got to make a choice right you have to choose love you have to choose virtue in ephesians 4 paul makes the very same case using the same metaphor actually of taking on and putting off uh, clothing to describe the christian's new and old ways of life listen to how he describes these fleshly desires that that still hang on he says Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Deceitful desires. Did you know that your own desires deceive you? Did you know that you are susceptible to following your desires to your own harm? Are you aware that your desires, says Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2, wage war against your soul? The things that you want, depending on what they are, may kill you. And you might think that it's actually for your good, because it's deceitful. Sometimes we believe we're pursuing what's godly and what's good for us, when in fact the desires we experience are actually subtly leading us away from God. And so we have to be vigilant to keep our desires under the watchful eye of God's word and of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And then to submit our desires to the Lordship of Christ. All of this to say, this is a bit of a rabbit trail, but all of this to say, in order to live a life of love among the people of God, we must choose Love. Above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. You must choose love. Number three, extend what you've received. It's really what you do when you love in the family of God. You're just giving out what you've been given already. Look at verse 12. 
put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. And then he gives the list of things to put on, virtues to cultivate. Why does he call us this? Why does he say this here? God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Why mention that at this point? Well, because it's the rationale and the power for the life of love that he's calling the church to live. In clothing ourselves with love for our brothers and sisters in Christ, we're really just living out who we are. Alistair Wilson says, the greatest motivation to faithful Christian living is a realization of what God has already done in a believer's life. So so who are we? If if these acts, these choices flow out of our identity, who are we? Well, let's look at this. God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. There's three things there. Number one, chosen ones. You are chosen by God. Mind blown. He has set his affections upon you and made you his own. Why? Because he's good. Praise God. He's merciful. He's chosen you. As God's chosen ones put on love. Second thing he tells us, you're holy. What does that mean? It means that he has set us apart. He chose us and he's set us apart. He's designated us in the world to image him in our words and our actions. So we've got a special purpose to fulfill and to live out. As the people of God, right, the people who belong to God because he's chosen us, as his people in the world, we are to be holy. We are to be distinct. We are to be set apart for his purposes. And then the number three thing he says is beloved. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Literally, the recipients of love. The ones whom God loves. Do you ever think of yourself that way? The one that God loves. That's your identity. Above anything else. We are those that God has chosen for himself, that he has commissioned to represent him to the world, and whom he loves. And so because of that, as the ones that God has chosen and the ones that God has set apart to reflect him in the world and the ones that he loves, as those people put on compassionate hearts, kindness, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, when one has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other, as what? As you have been forgiven, so you must also forgive. Since that's who you are, put these things on. So as it's described in this paragraph, love in the church is a determination to show compassion to one another. To be patient with each other. To forgive those in the church who offend or disappoint me. To do good 
to one another. It's not just passive. It's not just a passive, I'm going to let things go. It's an actual intentional pursuit of people for their spiritual good and benefit. And isn't all this simply what God has given us in Christ? And what he continues to pour out on us day after day? He is compassionate, kind, forbearing, patient, forgiving toward us. He stubbornly seeks out our spiritual good even at his own expense. That's what the gospel is. And this is what we're to live out toward one another. We're just giving what we've already received. Because God has forgiven you. Because God has been compassionate toward you. Because God is patient with you. Because God chooses you, sets you apart, and loves you. Love one another. Put on love. One more John Owen quote. I recommend this book, The Duties of Christian Fellowship. That's where all these little quotes come from. This love is a spiritual grace wrought by the Holy Spirit in the hearts of believers by which their souls are drawn out to seek the good of God's children. That's what we're doing when we love. It unites our hearts to those we thus love and is accompanied by a joy, a delight, and a satisfaction at seeing them blessed. Is that your heart for your fellow brother or sister in the church? I Take joy and delight and satisfaction at seeing him or her blessed. And I want to work to that end in the church. And at the end of the day, that's what all this emphasis on membership is about. 1 Corinthians 13, which we heard earlier in the service, opens with a reflection on the primacy of love by listing all these great and glorious virtues, right? Which would all be vain and meaningless if they were not accompanied by love. You know, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong and clanging cymbal, right? I wonder what that sort of list might look like if Paul had written it specifically to Cross Point Fellowship. If we hold each other accountable for our sins and failures but have not love. We are a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. If we are theologically astute and doctrinally precise, if we have robust biblical teaching and rich liturgies, but have not love, our knowledge gains us nothing. If we support global missions and send people overseas every year for ministry, but have not love, we accomplish nothing. If we grow numerically until we're running out of space in our buildings but have not love, we serve no one. If we boil it down to its most basic expression, we could say that church membership is simply a formal and explicit commitment to embody a special love for a particular body of believers to pursue the good and spiritual flourishing of that particular body. That's what all this is about. Above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. May the Lord empower us by his grace to love each other as he has loved us.
Well, if you are a member of Crosspoint Fellowship, we're not asking you to make that kind of commitment in this renewal. We're reminding one another that that is the commitment you've already made. As members of this body, you have committed to live in this way and to pursue this particular body of believers with that kind of special love, that kind of desire and joy to see others blessed, to eliminate and put away the vices that erode community and to pursue the virtue that builds up community. That's what you have committed to do. We all have committed to do that with one another as members of Crosspoint Fellowship. And at CF, we use a membership covenant. It's not, a, not, the, not commanded by the Bible, right? It's not like if a church doesn't have a membership covenant that it's, it's not a faithful church. This is not something like that. But it's a useful tool. Uh, we, we use a membership covenant to articulate the nature and commitments of our life together as the people of God in this local church. On this Sunday of membership renewal, we want to draw special attention to those commitments reminding one another of the solemn vow we've made before Christ and each other to submit ourselves to the teaching, nurture, and discipline of this church body. And for that purpose, I'm going to ask every member of Crosspoint Fellowship to recite together a portion of our membership covenant. For time's sake, we're only going to use the sort of preamble to the covenant, a little bit of an overview of it, rather than reading all five of the paragraphs uh, in it. But if you're a member of Crosspoint Fellowship, in just a minute I'm going to ask you to stand and we're going to recite this preamble of this covenant together and then ask the Lord to help us by his grace to live it out. If, you're, if you haven't covenanted with this body as a member, then I'm going to ask you to abstain from the recitation. Don't stand and read these words uh, along with us, but simply serve as witnesses to uh, this restatement of the commitments that CF members have made to one another. And so now, in this act of renewal, I'm going to invite the members of Crosspoint Fellowship to stand. Brothers and sisters, members of Crosspoint Fellowship, join me in renewing our commitments before Christ and these witnesses. In view of the grace we have in Christ and out of our love for God, the church endeavors to be an accountable people, led and leadable, taught and teachable, loved and loving, serving and giving, baptized and supping. <laughs> 